Welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton and I'm your host. For this episode of the podcast, we'll take a quick break from the intense POW tales of Southeast Asia. We'll get back to that soon. During this episode, I had the chance to catch up with my longtime friend of almost 20 years, Jerome Rand, who in 2017 and 18 sailed around the world in 271 days solo, non-stop, and unassisted. He did all this on a 32-foot sailboat named the Mighty Sparrow with no corporate sponsorship and very little of the equipment you might expect on today's modern sailboats. To put this accomplishment into perspective, more Americans have walked on the moon than accomplished this feat in such a small boat. Jerome overcame isolation, intense storms, lack of water, and lack of food to become one of just a handful of people to be able to pull this feat off. After listening to this episode, check out the link to his book, Sailing Into Oblivion, in the details section of this podcast. It's a terrific read. Also, while you're there, take five minutes and watch the YouTube video that's also embedded there as well. Those are both great ways to learn more about Jerome and his accomplishments. A big shout out to you, Jerome. I really appreciate you stopping by for a visit and for talking to us. I can't wait to see where you're off to next. I hope all our listeners enjoy this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. Jerome, it's awesome to see you here today, man. I appreciate you stopping by. Thank you, Pat. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Um, you know, I've known you for a long time. We were talking last night, and I, I think it was 2005 uh, when you and I first met. You were, you were working up in northern Michigan at the University of Michigan alumni camp uh, in charge of the sailing department there. And you were really into sailing back then. But in, in 2005... Were you thinking about sailing around the world and doing something like that way back then? You know, Pat, I was aware of that, of that challenge, but in my mind, it was something where, you know, almost every sailor thinks at one time in their life they want to do that, but it's, it's, it's a fleeting thought, and, you know, it's something that the seed had been planted but I hadn't, you know, pinned it down as a, an absolute goal of mine at that point. Yeah, you were, you were really into the Hobie 16s, and you were uh, sailing yeah. that all the time. So how did it live in, coming from, from northern Michigan? And so can you tell people a little, little bit about yourself? Uh, growing up in northern Michigan, how did you get into sailing? What, what interested you in that? Well, so, yeah, growing up there— obviously you're surrounded by water you've got the great lakes and then we lived very close to an inland lake called walloon lake and you know the same one that obviously you and i met on but i actually was the kid who was walking the shoreline looking for crayfish and pulling rocks over and and seeing what was underneath them and it probably wasn't until i was about 18 years old when i actually hopped on a sailboat for the first time and started started you know doing that and it was one of those things where everything clicked and you know if I ever had to say was there a moment in my life that you know I'll always think of as a a you know pivotal time it was the first time I got on a sailboat 
because my the direction of my life changed immediately. I knew that this was something that was not only going to be fun, but it was going to become a passion. And was that the Hobie 16? Was that, was, that your first boat? That was the Hobie 16. That yeah. blue Hobie 16, right? You got it. That <laughs> that boat, my dad, he bought that in the 80s. I believe its name was Miss Amenability, um, <laughs> whatever that means. But uh, I renamed it the Whaling Banshee. And, uh, yeah, that, that was my first boat. And, man, I, I spent a whole summer when I was, uh, I think it was when I was 19, where all I did was sail pretty much every single okay. day. And, and so how long, how long after that? So you're, you're, you started sailing at 18 on the Hobie 16 and how long did it take until you had progressed from being a small lake sailor on Walloon Lake to going off on bigger adventures on a sailboat? Well, I went, um, I'd say it was a couple of years, but in my early 20s, I entered into a program to get a captain's license over in England. And so that was where we really started sailing, you know, bigger boats out on salt water, having to navigate, you know, basically learn the ins and out of, of what it takes to become a, a yachtsman. And after you know, basically a year of training, got the captain's license, and I started doing, you know, yacht deliveries and things like that. I would say the first time I crossed an ocean, I believe, was in 2003, and that would have been the North Atlantic. So, uh, doing the math, yeah, basically five years after I learned how to sail. Okay, wow. And so, I, I had met you in the first time in 2005. So, you, you weren't really serious about doing that yet. And after the summers would end, you would go down and you would work at the Bitter End Yacht Club in, in, uh, in the Caribbean. Can, t- tell us about that and why, why did you go down there and what, what were your goals when you went to the Bitter End? Well, you know, during the summertime, the sailing is great in northern Michigan, but Obviously, that comes to an end uh, when the snow starts to fall. So I was basically just looking for a way to extend, you know, managing a water sports place. And, you know, the Caribbean is perfect year round. The the winds are blowing and it's about 85 degrees. So I started looking for employment down there and was lucky enough to hook into the Bitter End Yacht Club, which had a program very similar to the one I was running in Michigan and it was running for, you know, 10 and a half, 11 months out of the year, which was perfect. So I slotted right in and I spent five years in my first stint down there. It was fantastic. So is that where, when, when you're at the Bitter End Yacht Club, is, is that when you got serious about it and started putting your plan together to sail around the world? Was it at Bitter End? Well, I think by that point, yeah, I, I knew that someday I was going to do it. It was it was becoming more and more of a goal in my life. I hadn't really, you know, thought too much beyond saying, yeah, I want to do it and I'd like to do it like this, you know, in an older boat. Uh, but it was, you know, it was there. The seed had blossomed into, uh, you know, a tree that was growing bigger and bigger every year. But... So before you really got serious about it, I mean, you've always been a guy that um, loves adventure and you've you were out on other adventures and uh, the Appalachian Trail is the one specifically I'm, I'm thinking about right now. So you left uh, Bitter End at one point, I think it was in 2012, was it? 
yeah. to go out and hike the Appalachian Trail. So uh, tell us about that trip and how did that set you up to later uh, sail around the world? Well, yeah, that basically after after five years of, of running, running around at the bitter end, I mean, you know, as the, the water sports director, it's a, what I call a high octane job. You're you're on all the time, 100 percent, you know. Um, and so I, I basically after five years, I was I was pretty well burnt out and I just needed a little bit of a change. And the Appalachian Trail seemed like it would be a lot of fun. And, you know, I, I just. I really wanted to get back to the woods. I love camping. I love all that sort of stuff. And, and I'm starting to really understand that I, I guess I have a passion for punishment because <laughs> the Appalachian Trail, I say it's a fun thing, but it's, it's also very, very difficult and, and grueling at times. But the, the, the AT really gave me the confidence um, to be alone, to be in the wilderness, to be isolated from other people. And, and it also, it surprised me how good it felt to complete that, that challenge, to, to reach that goal. And when I finished that, I just, it was, it was basically like, all right, what's next? Got to do something like this or, or something even right. bigger. And that's where I kind of realized, okay, let's go for the big sale. Okay. But so in that, at that point, when you finished the Appalachian Trail, you, uh, you had no boat and uh, no money, no money. And so you had to figure out uh, what's next. So how did you make the money to buy the boat that you ended up getting? Well, and that, yeah, that was the thing. So I was able to hook back into Bitter End uh, and I basically went down there for three years and one of the nice parts about working at a resort like that is that I was living on site. So food, housing was all included, and I was able to save pretty much 90% of what I was making and still have a good time down there. And, yeah. and so I just kept packing it away and packing it away. And because of the, the, the parameters of the trip and you know doing it, even though I was doing it unsponsored, I was still looking to do it in an older boat. So the price tag wasn't going to be huge. And I wanted to do this thing sort of on a, on a budget, but I figured, you know, I would need about $100,000 all said and told, and that's including the boat. So I had a bit of money saved up, and, you know, year after year, it just kept growing and growing and growing, and basically was able to uh, pull the trigger after about three, three and a half years at Bitter End. Yeah, well, when I had heard you hike the Appalachian Trail, I wasn't too surprised at that because I knew you were that kind of guy. But when I heard you were going to set out uh, to sail around the world uh, by yourself, uh, nonstop, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, holy cow, is he really going to do this? And I, uh, just last night, I started thinking about how rare something like this is. You know, people, there's a lot of people in the world that like an adventure. Uh, and people talk about, you know, what are some great adventures out there that people could conquer? Well, about 4,000 people or more have climbed Mount Everest. Um, 500 people, they call space the last frontier, but over 500 people have been into space. And um, then I started looking at how many people have sailed around the world solo nonstop and that number is even smaller that's about 300 and then I, I started looking at some of the statistics even closer uh, 
how many people have sailed around the world uh, by themselves in a boat 32 feet or smaller, that's only a handful of people. There's not, so most people in this world don't know anybody that has done anything like this in the conditions that you did it in. I, I think it's amazing. And so my, my, my thinking is how the heck did you come up with a, with a plan like this? How did <laughs> well, you know, it, it was one of those things where when I first started doing yacht deliveries, so, you know, somebody pays you to do a, take their boat from point A to point B. I, every time I got on a boat, no matter what kind of boat it was, they all have a little library, you know, and they always have a few sailing books. But there were about three or four books that I saw on every single boat. And, you know, after cracking them open and reading them, you know, these are the books about the guys who first attempted to sail around the world alone without stopping. And, you know, this was all done back in the late 60s. So it's, it's really only been about 50, 52 years or so since the first solo nonstop happened. Uh, so it's a relatively new thing. But, um, you know, those were sort of my, my inspiration because I just thought, wow, okay, these guys are out there. You know, they're using just a sextant to navigate. They don't have water makers. They're in these old slow boats that are just built like tanks. And I thought, God, you know, that that really must be such an incredible experience. I mean, daunting for sure. But wow, to do that. And it, it's sort of the ultimate expression of sailing because, you know, one of the nice parts is on a sailboat, you can go anywhere in the world. You know, you can go to almost any country you want. You just got to sail there and you can do it on the power of nature. And the ultimate expression of that is to just wrap your way all the way around the planet and then come back. And, I, you know, it's always kind of funny because I I basically sailed almost 30,000 miles to go nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> I came right back to the place I left. Well, so so share with us a little bit. Nat. So you went back to the bitter end. You, you made your money for the boat and. Um, what was the process like for be, that? That's a pretty major uh, decision. What kind of boat are you going to sail on? So can you tell us a little bit about what your process looked like? Uh, what boats did you consider and what kind of boat did you finally decide on and where did you end up buying it? Well, I, you know, for, for a, a mission like this, you, you really need a boat that's, that's built like a tank. I mean, you need something that you know, modern day boats, um, while they're faster and, and technologically they're, they're much better. They can't stand up to the beating of, of being out at sea for quite that long. I mean, it, it's incredible the stresses that these boats can take after nine months out at sea. And so, you know, because I was modeling my adventure after the first guys that did it, it kind of, you know, it, it made it that I, I really needed to look for an older boat that, again, you know, was built just to be able to sail anywhere in the world. And after reading that book, The Perfect Storm, and learning that the sailboat that was in that was actually a West Sail 32. And even though after the people had been pulled off of off of the boat by the Coast Guard, that boat managed to sail itself through the rest of that storm, and it beached on the Jersey Shore with little little damage at all from the actual storm. And after I found that out, I started researching West Sails, and it, it really became apparent that if I wanted to make it around safe and sound, that was the boat I was looking for. Okay. 
Well, so that movie you mentioned, Perfect Storm, that that's a real popular movie. I think probably most people have seen. That's Mark Mark Wahlberg in there and Richard yep. Clooney. I think Re- really good movie. Um, so you decided on a West West Sale Thirty Two. How long did it take you to find it, uh, and and where did you end up finding this one? Uh, I was I was searching online probably the entire time I was back down at Bitter End. So three years of of constantly perusing. But once I once I finished up there, it was oh no actually it was right before I think it was it was after the third year I was back in the states. Went on a little road trip with my mom. We must have looked at five or ten different boats. Not all West Sales, but pretty pretty much mostly West Sales. And didn't find much. And then right before I was supposed to head back to Bitter End for the last little bit, uh, I just stumbled across one online. It was down in Jupiter, Florida. And I ended up flying down there before I went to the Caribbean. Looked at the boat. Saw it was in great shape. It was about two-thirds of the way finished and pretty much signed the paperwork right then and there. So when you say two-thirds of the way finished, I mean, it, it was an older boat, but in, do you mean two-thirds of the way ready for the voyage? or what, So what do you mean by that? Uh, two-thirds of the way ready just to go out to sea by okay. any means. So, you know, the, the gentleman who I bought it from had been restoring it for about 10 or 12 years. It had been in his backyard. Got it, yeah. And it, it just needed, you know, all the rigging, everything put together. And there were, you know... A list of maybe a million things to do. So um, the name of your boat is, is of course, the Mighty Sparrow. And uh, anybody that reads your book, Sailing Into Oblivion, will will know that. There's a beautiful picture of the boat uh, right on the cover. Good-looking boat. When you bought it, was that the name of the boat? Was it the Mighty Sparrow when you purchased it? No, no, I changed the name. Uh, it was it was the, under a different name at the time. Plus, I, I needed to change the registration uh, okay. from Jupiter, Florida and, and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, the Mighty Sparrow, he's the, the Calypso king of the world, you know, down there in the Caribbean. And in a lot of ways, his music was my sort of Caribbean ambassador, you know, being down there, I, I got to, I was very fortunate to sort of be welcomed into the local community on Virgin Gorda. And, you know, his music was a big bridge for that, you know, the old timers and all that, you know, anybody down there, you start playing Mighty Sparrow or talking about Mighty Sparrow, you're making a connection. And, right. You know, of, of all the things that I love about the Caribbean and being down there, you know, the, the people are definitely one of the biggest biggest things you know they're they're so so welcoming and just such great people so when you bought did you buy the boat right then how long after you first saw it did you actually buy it and and did you just take it down to the caribbean with you uh well so i signed the paperwork i went back down or put put a small deposit down went to the caribbean finished up down there after a couple of months and then by thanksgiving i was back in the states and uh, moved on the boat, put it in the water, started putting it together. And I think December of that year was when my father and I did the sea trial, which entailed us sailing from Jupiter down to the BVI, which is about, I think that trip was around 1,200 miles. Normally a sea trial is, you know, maybe an overnight sail or a day sail, but I had a lot of faith in the boat. 
and we we had a lot of problems on that trip we lost the engine we went through a pretty nasty little storm but you know that that boat it's it it's hardy you know she she right. took us down there safe and sound it took a lot longer than i thought but uh yeah we, we made it so then how how long did it take you after that after your sea trial how long did it take to get the boat ready before you were ready to leave on your on your adventure around the world Oh, it was a year of preparation and, and plan. Because, you know, up until that point, you know, I'd never done any solo sailing. So it was a sort of a big gamble what I was trying to do anyway, you know, is, is sort of like you hop out. I still remember my first solo passage was from the British Virgin Islands to Dominica, which is about 300 miles. And, you know, I had no idea if I was going to be able to do this. I didn't sleep barely at all for, I think it was three days or something. And, you know, eventually I, I found my rhythm with it. But, um, you know, it, it was just doing passages. I think I sailed about 10,000 miles during that winter in preparation for the trip. And really it was all about figuring out the systems, finding the flaws, and, and you know, making a list so that when I brought the boat up to Maine, during the summer and had three or four months to prepare i knew exactly what i needed to do i could get it done in a timely fashion so that i'd be ready to take off in the fall okay all right wow and the one thing that i think is really unique and uh it'd be cool if you could share that with everybody i think you you didn't have a whole lot of fancy systems on this boat um it, it was a 1970s built uh, boat, and it didn't have a lot of the creature comforts. Can you talk about the the main features that you had on that boat to uh, to navigate, to communicate, uh, and so on and so forth? Yeah, well, it, it was you know, and I, I was sort of taking uh, advice from those old time sailors of you know, simplicity is the key to success out there. You know, you, you have too many complicated systems on a boat. They tend to break down more often. And if you're actually depending on those, then the trip is over. So I really went the route of absolute minimalist and, you know, with a little dash of modern technology. So I had I had, um, you know, a GPS to be able to locate my position. I had what's called an AIS or automatic identification system, which is a, a sort of a new form of radar that uses satellites and computers. Um, I did have a sextant. I had my charts and I use those in the Atlantic. I really enjoy, you know, finding my position via the sun. I think it's, it's cool, but it's really a hobby until, you know, the GPS breaks down. Um, I had a sat phone so that I could do downloads of the weather. And then I had what was called a Garmin inReach. And this one really allowed me to send text messages to friends and family and then also receive them. And that little bit of communication uh, would turn out to be a lifesaver out there. You know, I could get, you know, quick updated weather information when you know the downloads weren't able to happen and, and things like that but you know outside of those things everything else was just basically fiberglass canvas and aluminum i mean 
Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about the, the Garmin inReach. So is that a device that would like, uh, for example, hook up to your cell phone and act as the Wi-Fi, so to speak, for your cell phone? And you could send text messages on your cell phone. Is that how you exactly, get it? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, okay. it, it, it not so much Wi-Fi, but yeah, you you they they connect together and it's basically like, yeah, I can just send a text and then I'll receive them as well. It got a little fluky out there for a little bit, but uh, with a couple factory resets, everything got online. There was a point where, for about two days, unbeknownst to me, the text messages were being scrambled and sent to the wrong addresses. That's and not good. <laughs> I got some pretty funny responses. Um, so what about um, the autopilot? Um, what did that look like on your boat? Cause you couldn't stay awake 24 seven. You had, you had to sleep. And so how did the boat, uh, navigate while you were sleeping? So that was, that was a wind vane. And again, this is an old time design. I think it was, you know, the Aries wind vane was made back in, in the fifties or the sixties or invented back then. They still make brand new ones, but basically it's a non-electrical mechanical device. Very simple, very hardy that sits on the back of the boat that you connect to the steering system so that, you know, as long as there's wind and you're moving, the boat's going to hold its course. Now, if the wind changes direction, then the boat's going to change direction as well. But, you know, even if I'm asleep, you know, you, you get into such a rhythm where if there's a big wind shift, the boat would start doing feeling different and that would wake me up instantly. So, you know, not only while I was sleeping was this thing steering for me, but pretty much all day as well. You know, I, I'm, I'm not up there hand steering unless I absolutely have to be, you know, in a lot of ways you're, you're tuning the whole boat and getting everything set so that the boat does everything and you're just sort of minding it. So if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well tell So tell me about, um, you get the boat ready to go. Um, where did you leave from? Tell us a little bit about that. Where did you end up departing from and and why did you choose that location? And uh, talk about your preparations and loading provisions and food and everything onto the boat. How, how did you make sure you had enough? How did, how did that whole process look? Well, as far as provisioning went, you know, when I spent that, that summer up in Maine preparing, you know, I had notebooks full of lists from, you know, food to supplies to spares and all that. And I'm, I'm in there sort of calculating as much as I can and basically melting this credit card that I had or, or the <laughs> bank card, you know, just watching boxes come and every single day more stuff and watching the account drop down. But trying in my best to add it up. And the Appalachian Trail helped with that because I had to do, you know, a bunch of reprovisioning there. And, you know, you really wanted to make sure you had enough food to get you the next 150 miles, stuff like that. And so, you know, I thought I'd done a pretty good job up there. And after preparing it, um, we got into the hurricane season. Now it's September. And, you know, we had Hurricane Irma, Maria, Jose. And now it's October and I'm starting to wonder if I'm even actually going to be able to leave. And, and that's one of the, the, the unique parts of this trip. When you leave from the United States, um, you pretty much the best time to leave would be the beginning of September, which is pretty much the peak of hurricane season. So I opted to go at the beginning of October, still in the hurricane season. Uh, you still have to basically cross the hurricane path. 
but I was sort of just hoping for the best. And things were getting a bit tight, and with all those hurricanes, especially Irma being so huge, uh, I was getting a little nervous up there. But October 3rd, there wasn't uh, much developing down off of the coast of Africa where the hurricanes begin, and nothing coming up the coast. Jose had just passed to the north, and that's when I set off from Gloucester, Massachusetts. And, you know, Gloucester was... Uh, you know, or is and all, has always been one of the greatest seaports on the East Coast, you know, as far as the, the fishing boats and the fleets and everything. And some of the stories of, you know, the, the, the sailors, you know, Blackburn and, and him rowing back in, his hands freezing to the oars. And, you know, I was also honoring some of the old time great first sailors, the solo sailors like Alfred Johnson, who was the first person to cross an ocean solo uh in 66 days he takes a 22 foot dory you know wow from gloucester to liverpool and and slocum's last port of call was in gloucester he bought a bunch of fishing stuff went out to george's bank to do some fishing storm kicks up and he finds himself on the beginning of his voyage you know it's it's a very historic place yeah so the next thing i want to do is talk about the route went so you left from gloucester massachusetts october 3rd uh 2017 um it's i think it's really important for for people listening to be able to understand and picture the route in in their head they can go to www.fifthcape.com and they can see your route there right and yeah, that's if you, you scroll down to the bottom and you can see it. There's pictures, there's all sorts of stuff, but there's an actual map that, you know, you can see, you can zoom on out and you can see the entire planet and all. It's basically done by a daily check, I think, about noon each day. And, and that was done by a cousin of mine. He just sort of kept plotting my course uh, right. around the world. I mean, and, and I think that's important because I'll, I'll tell you for myself, when I envisioned, when I heard you were going to sail around the world, I had the cruiser's route of sailing around the world ingrained in my mind. I mean, that's what I pictured. And I knew you weren't going to be sailing through the Panama Canal because that would uh, make you have to stop to get through the canal and whatnot. So right. I knew you were going to have to go down to the bottom and you were going to have to go around South America. But I thought you would be going from east to west but you didn't. You you sailed to the east, and so talk about the what necessitated that, and what are the factors that come into play when you're routing for a, a trip like that on a sailboat, as far as the the currents and the winds and whatnot. Well, so I was I was following what you would call the the old clipper ship route, and um, so before you know the Panama Canal, Suez Canal, the old clipper ships coming from you know the east indies and stuff back to europe basically you had to go down into the southern ocean to get underneath africa and underneath south america and so uh, essentially you know in in the atlantic and the south atlantic and the the middle latitude so to speak you've got the trade winds and they're flowing from east to west they're usually gentle breezes there's not many gales outside of hurricane season but if you either go north of the trades or south of the trades into the Southern Ocean, then you get into the westerlies. And the westerlies, you know, down south, their nickname is the Roaring Forties, 
Furious 50s and the Screaming 60s, and those are aptly named. I mean, <laughs> you go down there, the Southern Ocean is the one place on the planet where the storms can wrap around, you know, and keep going around Antarctica un, unimpeded so they don't hit any land, which allows the waves to build up to just gigantic size. And it, it's basically a place where, you know, if things go wrong, you're on your own. You know, that's it's it's basically the weather is bad and the isolation is worse. You know, you're you're there's no call for help down there, uh, especially when you're doing this sort of on your own. It's not an organized event. There's no people watching over ready to make the call. It's sort of uh, and e- even if even if they do that, you're still looking at probably five to ten days for anybody to get to you. Right. Well, so so what was your route then? Can you quick quickly summarize that and and tell us what the plan was when you departed? What what was the route you were planning to follow? So leaving from the east coast, go a little further than halfway across the Atlantic to over toward England. Toward England, yep. And then you turn down, you head towards the equator. Once you get to the equator, you're in the South Atlantic. You keep going south. And then once you get down to about 40 degrees south, which is about, you know, halfway down that, then you turn and you head east and you keep going east into the Indian Ocean. You cross the Indian Ocean, go underneath Australia, keep going east, enter the Pacific, keep going east. It's about four and a half thousand miles to South America. Go underneath that. That's where you get really close to Antarctica, about 500 miles away, around Cape Horn back into the South Atlantic. Now you're going north, get to the equator again, and then cruise right up to the East Coast. I mean, it's, you know, from from the standpoint of, you know, technical sailing and going through islands and watching out for reefs, there's really none of that. It's right. mostly just about being isolated and being very far away from help and being in the middle of the greatest expanse of emptiness on this planet right so that so your route was dictated by by the the winds and uh, the current and the current as well yeah how much did the current come into play on your route planning well you know i mean it's the winds drive a lot of those currents but uh it, it comes into play when when you have sort of wind against current, that's when the waves get really big and they start to break almost as if they're breaking on the shore, you know, and that's where it can become very dangerous. But also, you know, you can hook into a current, a counter current that, you know, when I went underneath the Cape of Good Hope, so underneath Africa, you know, there's a current that runs down Africa. It's, it would be an opposing current, but there was a big eddy that came off of it and I hooked into that and all of a sudden I was doing twice as fast as I should have been because I'm in this big river of flowing water that's taking me, you know, right where I want to go. So sometimes it can be the biggest advantage and sometimes it can be the most dangerous thing that you wander right. into. Well, so so that's the plan and, and it look and it, it looks like a great plan and it even Sounds very simple on paper. Sounds but great. It, but, it, but it's far from simple, and it's far from safe, and it's one of the most dangerous things in the world that you could uh, possibly do. So t- tell us about the voyage. When was the first time on the voyage 
um, that things didn't go exactly as planned? Did you, did you get to a point where you had to change your route uh, at some point during the voyage? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, out there, you one of the things that, that I, I, I enjoy about being out there is you, you're, you're dealing with Mother Nature, and Mother Nature is very unpredictable. And, and basically, I can just react to what she's doing because, you know, the ocean is in complete control of, of my day-to-day. And, and like I said, all I can do is try and, and stay alive in, that, in those conditions. But, yeah, I mean, it, within about 10 days or two weeks of being in the North Atlantic, there was the last hurricane, Hurricane Ophelia, came up. Um, it was out in the middle of the Atlantic, so it wasn't a danger to anybody except for me who was out there. <laughs> And it was heading towards Europe, but basically it, it sort of cut in front of me, and I ended up having to turn south much earlier than I wanted to. And what? Why was that bad that you had to turn south early? What was the disadvantage of that? Well, basically, so I was up there in in sort of the westerlies or the variable, so so the wind is taking me over towards Europe. Um, the further south you go, then you hit the trades trade winds that are coming from the east and i wanted to hit those so that i could i could sail straight down with the with the wind on my beam which basically is a fast and comfortable way to sail but having to turn much earlier to make it to the point where i wanted to i basically had to now sail into the wind and waves and that can be a miserable time and miserable experience at best and how early in the voyage did that? So that was within the first uh, several weeks, three just or four weeks. The first weeks. couple of weeks, yeah. I think the the hurricane passed by, and and again, I just you know I just let it pass by. So I changed my route, and yeah, within within probably a week or two of that was when I reached the trade winds and started beating like a you know a mad person and having to you know bash into the wind and bash into the waves, and that would continue for you know over a month. That's enough to drive anybody crazy. How, how long did it take you to get down to the equator and cross the equator? Uh, I think it was just, just about a month total from, from departure, maybe, maybe a month and a week or something. You know, um, I think it was about mid-November when I crossed the equator. So and Anything notable happened cro- crossing the equator, or was that an uneventful time for you? You were already a shellback, so you didn't yeah. have to worry about that. <laughs> you know, normally normally it's this big hoorah, but, um, yeah, unfortunately I'd already crossed, and, you know, I'm by myself. So, it's you know, normally people get tied to the mast and sprayed <laughs> with salt water and all that. But, no, I, I really, you know, I had a little ceremony that I would do at the uh, – the big pivotal moments like the equator or when I would get underneath each Cape. And that was this little ceremony where I had some flags of some of the yacht clubs that I, I worked at and were sort of supporting me. And I also was carrying one of my, my good childhood friends, uh, his father's ashes. And this guy was, you know, uh, an adventure through and through. And he was more excited about this trip than I was. Unfortunately, he ended up passing away about a year or so before I left and and so my friend gave me some of his ashes and so i'd i'd toss a few of those over and then you know i'd have a shot of something and and do a splash of 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 rum into the sea you know so i had this little ceremony that i was doing and that was the first time i had done it so it was a pretty good moment and and it you know signified the end of the first ocean and the beginning of the next right so so what was the first cape that you rounded and what uh uh what was that like 
So that's the the Cape of Good Hope at the at the bottom tip of of Africa, and that one is a scary, spooky place, uh, especially for me because it was the first time I had entered into the Southern Ocean, and you know I don't know what to expect. The storms are really big. I can see the the storms further south. I can feel this giant swell that's out there, and and there's also the Agulhas Current and. This current basically opposes any big southwesterly storm that's come off of Antarctica. And when the two of those meet, that, that can produce waves big enough to take down cruise ships. And it has. You know, it's, it's a, a spooky place. And you have to be down there for a while because the Cape extends for a long time. And, you know, it, it's, at that point, it's, it's total commitment. You know, you're down there and whatever the weather is going to throw at you, you're going to have to deal with it because there's no quit button. There's no stop. There's no pause. You're in it. And, and when that happened to you, when you got around there and you're under the cape, what was the weather like when you were there? Uh, it was off and on. I, I had a, a couple little severe blows, nothing too crazy. And then there was a monster gale that came up. Luckily, it was still developing when it, it ran over me. But it was my first real gale. I think within a day of, of it passing over me was when it was reaching hurricane strength. Um, so I sort of lucked out because I had been becalmed just a few days before, which slowed me down. But by the morning after that storm, you know, that was when I was seeing swell that were well above 40 feet. Now, these are just rolling swell, so they're not dangerous, but they are awe-inspiring. I mean, you, you probably could have fit a, a stadium in between these waves. That's how much room there is. Right. Uh, and it's amazing because as you get picked up to the top of one of these, then you can see all the rest of the chain coming. And that was one of the times where I think I felt smaller than any other, other time on that trip. Yeah. So how, how long did that part of the voyage take in the Southern Ocean between... Uh, the tip of South Africa until the point that you got underneath Australia. How long? That that's a very that's all the Southern Ocean there. Correct? Well, that's yeah. So that's the Indian Ocean. Indian Ocean, and it, it's got pretty bad reputation. It's a it's um, a volatile ocean. You never really know what you're going to get. There's been a lot of boat races and things like that where you know some of the most severe storms happen in the Indian Ocean, and people get rolled and you know, boats sink and stuff like that. So I was, I, I want to say it was about 30 or 40 days to cross the Indian Ocean. Okay. From the Cape of Good Hope to Cape Lewin, which is the eastern, or sorry, the western tip uh, of Australia. Okay. And so uh, we talked, we haven't really talked about this much yet, but you got to have a lot of water to, to take care of yourself. So how did you store water on your boat and how is your water supply holding up and how are you getting more water uh, during this point? So my, my intention originally was just to catch rainwater and I wasn't even going to take a, a little desalinator pump or anything. Um, you know, a, a real water maker, you know, that makes it on its own electricity and stuff. Those are thousands of dollars and I, I didn't have the budget for that. So I opted for a little emergency hand pump and those usually produce about a gallon of fresh water per hour of constant pumping. So, you know, not the most efficient thing, but you know, you need water to survive, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so I basically went and, uh, I had a hundred gallons of fresh water when I left 
and I was using it probably a little irresponsibly and, and, you know, not catching rain as much as I should have on my way down. But I had it in two main tanks, and then I also had five small five-gallon jerry cans. And the reason for that is, you know, you rupture a tank and lose, you know, if you keep all your water in one basket, what's that, that saying? Don't keep all your eggs in one basket. Right. Don't keep your water in one tank. And yeah. so, uh, you know, because sometimes it'll just get contaminated, you know, you get bacteria. So long story short, I had 100 gallons, was running out of it, had to whip that pump out. And after that pump had produced about 20 gallons for me, it exploded. And now I was back to the original plan of, you know, basically I have to just catch all my rainwater. And, you know, it is one of those interesting things where the more I've thought about that situation, the more I've gotten to realize that that pump, you know, was part of the reason why I got into that situation. Had I not had it, I probably would have been much more diligent in catching rainwater and holding on to every bit of fresh water I have. And, you know, not not saying it's the pump's fault as much as I'd like to point the finger at that. It's my fault. I was the one making the stupid decisions. But those are predicated upon the fact that I would be able to produce water the whole time yeah. I was out at sea. You were, you were telling me before um, that that basically gave you a false sense of security. Correct. On the voyage, right? Well, yeah. And it's, it's, it's one of those things where, yeah, when I, when I dissect that whole thing and I think about, yeah, if I wouldn't have even brought it. And I didn't have that sense of like, yes, I'll always be able to make fresh water. This is fine. I can I can take a shower now. No big deal. You know, I never would have gotten that situation. Right. So you you have been so you're in the Indian Ocean now, way down south, approaching um, Australia, getting to the point where you're going to cross under Australia um, how long had you been at sea at that point, approximately? I think by that point, I was probably out there for about 120 days or so. So, okay. you know, isolation had uh, had really, I don't want to say it's taken its toll, because you do get used to being out alone at sea. You sort of just become, you know, a citizen of the ocean, so to speak. Uh, but you also start getting a little weird, you know, as you can imagine. I've seen some of your videos yeah. when you got back. So, yeah, it, it affected you a little bit. A little bit, a little <laughs> bit, you know, but that, that's to be expected because, you know, it's your life changes out there when, when you're alone. You know, things like your appearance, looking in the mirror, those go out the door very quickly and you become very used to, you know, not caring about any of the superficial stuff because it's just you out there. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. It's something I've always really liked. You know, the, the Appalachian Trail, for instance, you know, while you're out there, because you're usually in the woods for a week or so, and then you have to go to a town to resupply. And I can always remember, you know, that, that last mile or two before you walk into town, you sort of realize, oh, my gosh, I don't even know what I look like. I could have dirt all over my face. <laughs> and a lot of times I did. And who cares, right? And who cares? But, <laughs> you know, I also don't want to scare away every person that I come in contact with. So you're trying to look for a stream so you can give yourself a right. little scrub, you know? So so in the Indian Ocean, approaching Australia, how, how's uh, the food supply ho holding up? Not not good at all. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> so t tell us a little bit about what happened with that because this is – this whole at the beginning of the adventure, you had a very clean plan. 
uh, it seemed to be very well thought out and it seemed like it would be a, a great adventure, but there was a lot of problem solving that you had to do a lot uh, along the way. So what happened with the food? Explain that whole situation. Yeah, basically, you know, uh, again, long story short was when I was doing these provision, I was, I had those lists and I'm adding all these things up. You know, I was focusing on how many servings were in each one of these tubs of dehydrated food or how many servings is in an MRE entree and, and that, and I'm just calculating using that. And what I'm not realizing is that some of these servings are only say 200 calories. And really when it comes down to it, it's all about caloric intake when you're trying to survive for an extended period of time like that. And you have a limited amount of food and Basically, I was calculating one serving is one meal, so I need three servings a day. And I had provisioned way over that. But when I got out there, the reality that was crashing in on me was it really is more like three servings is one meal, so I need nine servings a day. Uh, and that would be to be fully, you know, full all the time, fat and happy. So somewhere in the middle of that was where I needed to be, and I was way below it. So luckily, I was doing an inventory about you know day 120 or so. And, that's, and, and what prompted that? Why did you decide to do an inventory? Did you run out of something and that got you thinking? How would that occur? It could have been. I, I think it was something where, yeah, I had run out of, who knows, chocolate, beef jerky. One, one of the good things, you know, they eat a little too fast. And seeing that, you know, all of a sudden, you know, that shelf was empty, I sort of thought, okay, well, hold on. I'm not even halfway through this trip I better take a look. And I remember going through and calculating it and staring at my total and thinking, uh, okay, this isn't good, but I'm really glad that I caught this right now. Uh, and basically right. from that point on, uh, you know, the rationing began. And where was that? So where were you? Uh, where Had you passed under... Australia at that point? I think I was under Australia at that time when I started realizing what was going on. So I still had the Pacific, the South Atlantic, and the North Atlantic to get through, you know, approximately 15,000 miles or so. That's a long way to it's ration long, food. It's a long way. And, you know, it, again, you've got it. It's not, it's not me sitting on land with a straight mind and all that thinking it's me. I've been isolated for 130 days and now I'm dealing with this issue. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> and we, we were talking about that last night, actually about how difficult that would be because that would be like when, when people are on land and they're trying to diet and lose weight just by abstaining and not eating that much you were on a sailboat all alone with a lot of time on your hands and you were staring at the food all the time but you couldn't eat it and the food was staring back at me oh, and it was lady calling like, jerome hey <laughs> come here yeah no it is it's it's a great point because you know, and I, I know what it's like to try and, you know, be on sort of a diet and be regimented here on land. And, and luckily, yeah, there are. There's a lot of distractions. You can go do other things, take your mind off it. But, yeah, sitting on that boat, knowing that there's, you know, a whole bag of, of M&Ms or, or something like that. I think the last, you know, uh, guilty pleasure food I had was like a five-pound bag of gummy bears. And all the chocolate was gone, all the cookies were gone, that sort of stuff. But they had these gummy bears, and man, 
I tried my best. I tried my best, but my willpower towards that, it wasn't until I was like, okay, I have this many servings left and I have to make them last. And it, you know, it was funny because there were times where, you know, if I knew I was going to do a lot of work or something that day or had to do a lot of sale changes, stay up all night, because sometimes you only sleep a few hours in, in 24 and I would eat a little bit more. And as soon as I ate it, I'd, I'd feel terrible because I knew I'd really just stolen from my future self. Right. And that, you know, then I'd be like, ah, you know, well, I'm sorry. So, so you're rationing your food now. You're having to catch all your uh, own rainwater. Um, the adventure and, had begun. Yeah, the real adventure had begun. An adventure you you didn't know you were signing up for at the time, but but you were you were accepting the challenge and and you didn't quit and you pressed on, which I think is remarkable. And you're crossing the Pacific now. So, what what were some of the more memorable things about crossing the Pacific? I know you've told me about storms that you had to encounter there, but also some really beautiful, memorable sights too. So take us through some of that. Well, there's, I mean, you know, out, out in the ocean, especially the Southern ocean, it's like two weeks of bad and then you get one day of good. I, I'd say that's a, a pretty, <laughs> that's fair, not a great ratio. Well, yeah, but it, it's, it's a unique place. And, and for how dangerous it is, it, it somehow, it, it sunk its teeth in me you know it's got its hooks in me and I, I really I find it a place that that still to this day is sort of calling me back because when you do get those moments where you know either the moon is so bright you can you know you can see everything around you to the phosphorescence the glowing you know stuff that's in the water you know the the stars I remember after one of these cyclones had sort of passed by it, it basically sucked all the moisture out of the air and the stars. I came up on deck one night, no moon at all. And the boat was literally lit up as if, as if there was a half moon in the sky. And I'm sort of looking around and I realized that it's just the stars and is the twice as bright as I'll ever see them probably in my whole life. And they were unbelievable enough to make me sit out in the freezing cold for hours that night, just staring up and, and, you know, really getting a sense, you know, when you see an enhanced image of the stars where you can see the Milky Way super thick and it's just like, wow, OK, we're part of this huge galaxy and all this sort of stuff. That's how it felt. It felt like I was looking into a screensaver. And when you get to experience moments like that and they're all yours, you know, nobody else is seeing that there's there's a, a great feeling of accomplishment and and, you know, I felt like I had made the right life choice. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, that's awesome. That's and, and see that that's something that's really unique about you. You have an outstanding outlook on life and a great attitude, and you're looking at all the positive things. I asked you to tell me about the Pacific, and you tell me some of the 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 most incredible sights and experiences that you had. I know you also had some rough experiences. I think it was in the Pacific where you hit one of the worst storms that you went through um, and you were you were near some an around the world race that was going on where they had some very difficult times getting through it and actually some of them didn't make it through that can yeah, you tell us well, about that that was about uh, maybe two-thirds of the way across the pacific and as as you start to make your turn down towards Cape Horn, because you have to go really far south. I mean, if you look at a globe, you, you have to basically turn it upside down to find Cape Horn. 
But um, this big, big system, a big gale had had sprung up. And the other guys, it was one of the few times that I was I really wasn't alone out there. The Volvo Ocean Race was going on. And, and they had actually lapped me a bunch of times, um, but they stop along the way. And so, you know, these guys were about maybe 100 miles or so, 50 miles south of my position, and we're all caught in this really nasty storm. The, the winds are up in the 50-knot range. How did you know they were there? Were you communicating with them or talking on uh, radio? I was being told. My, my father, he, he had uh, – I think he had actually – got in touch with one of the team's race managers because he was he was tracking me but he was also tracking them my dad's you know he loves those races and loves he's like an armchair adventurer okay but uh and i think he had contacted them just to let them know you know you guys ought to keep your eyes out so you don't run over my son out there (laughs) because in the southern ocean the last thing you think you're ever going to see is another boat i mean i in four months from the cape of good hope to Cape Horn, I only saw four boats. Wow. And two of them were just outside of New Zealand. So, you know, it's, it's a rare occurrence, but I, I think, you know, during that storm, during the day, things are getting worse and worse. It's building up. This was a point where I was basically, I had, you know, uh, a bed sheet for a sale. That's how big it was. Just tiny little thing. And it wasn't, wasn't being used to get me going faster. It was, it was used to keep me going with the wind and waves because as the waves built up bigger and bigger, you know, the threat of being smashed into and rolled over is, is very real. And right. You know, nightfall comes. There's about a half moon or something. I can't really remember. But I, I do remember it was very lit up. And I'd be up there on deck standing next to the mast. And it's just roaring around me, absolutely roaring. And you feel so exposed. And as things went on later that night, the waves got bigger and bigger. But then the wind dropped off a little bit. And I think that was sort of the start of the problem. So, you know, imagine I'm down in my bunk. I'm trying to sleep. It's not really going well. It's just I'm just hearing the roar, the dull thud of, of these these huge waves breaking around me. And, you know, the boat, I think, was slowing down unbeknownst to me because the wind was dropping. But that doesn't mean the waves disappear. And just, you know, out of the blue, just all of a sudden a dull roar turns into the loudest slam and impact that that I had had on the entire voyage. And basically a big breaking wave hit the boat on its side. It forced us over about 90 or 100 degrees. Mast hits the water. You know, everything goes flying in my boat. Stuff gets ripped off of the deck. I hear loud bangs, all this sort of stuff. Basically, my world is turned upside down. And I get up on deck, and, you know, I'm terrified. I don't know what's going on, all this stuff. And basically, I'm, I'm in a situation where i got to figure out, one, why that happened. Two, if it's just going to keep happening. And, you know, three, what am I going to do about it? Right. And so uh, I sort of figured, okay, I think I'm going too slow at this point because I I knew I'd realized at that point the wind had dropped off. And so I needed to try and put up more sail. And I still I love it. I I remember standing next to that mast and attempting to raise a little bit of sail. And normally, you know, if you're going to raise a sail on a boat, you turn into the wind. That was literally not an option there. And so I'm trying to inch this thing up, literally one inch at a time. And I'm just stopping. I'm looking around at just this this angry ocean, 
lit up by this moon. You know, everything is just violent and fast and the boat's getting thrown around. And I'm just thinking, I got to be the only idiot out here <laughs> trying to put up more sail in this gale. But that's what you had to do to keep the boat speed sufficient so that wouldn't happen again. Absolutely, yeah. And, and once I got this teeny bit of extra sail up, the boat started to speed up a little. I took a few more impacts, but nothing quite like that. And was that mainsail you were putting up, or were you putting up a bigger jib? No, that was mainsail. Um, one of the things, you know, with the boat being of that older design, it can track, you know, it, it doesn't uh, get rounded up into the wind, so to speak, um, as much. That boat, you know, a, a modern day boat, if you tried to run downwind with that mainsail like I was doing, chances are the thing would get overpowered and then it would turn side to the waves and then it would get rolled. But uh, with that older boat, I was able to do things that, you know, usually you can't really get away with. Right. So with that storm there that, that you're experiencing in the Pacific was, I know you've told me you, you experienced several pretty major storms. Uh, was that the most severe or were there others that were more severe than that, that, that you had to go through? You know, it, it's sort of, uh, each storm has its own or each gale has its own feel, you know, some of them, the waves are really steep and breaking. Some of them, the wind is just incredibly strong and you're crawling around on the deck. Uh, other times, you know, it, it can be something where the swell is just so, so gigantic. You can't even believe that it's real. Um, so they all have their own little, their own little features. And so it, it's hard to say which one's worse or which one's scarier, but that, that one was, um, it was a very large system. So the waves had built up to a, a pretty intense, uh, size and, and force, but, um, you know, it was also having to do with where I was. I was basically in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I think the nearest land was probably 1,200, 1,500 miles away. You know, I was near what's called Point Nemo, which is the furthest point on the planet Earth that you can get from land. I think it's 1,600 miles to the nearest island. And so, you know the isolation out there or the fact that you might get rescued, that's not even, you don't even consider it. Yeah. And so when was it at that point? Because I know there became a point in time where I, and I, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think it was not long after that storm that you realized you were not going to make it without getting additional food supplies. What was it? During that storm, after that storm, or soon after? Uh, it was probably before that that I, I really knew, you know, but I wasn't admitting it to myself. I was sort of, I kept, I kept thinking, oh, you know, I'll get into the Atlantic and I'll, I'll be fishing and, and it'll be fine. You know, in the, in the Southern Ocean, one of the problems I was having was that I, if I put a lure out, I had albatross and all these huge birds just dive bombing. They were picking my lures apart. You know, that was the only time I ever had to use the shotgun. And it wasn't to kill a bird, it was just to scare them away. But that was always, you know, scare them away for 10 minutes and then they'd be right back. Right. And so I didn't catch, I caught one fish underneath New Zealand and I didn't catch anything across the, the, the Pacific there. And, you know, I was, I was basically just trying to fool myself. And eventually, yeah, I had to pull the trigger and, and get my father involved with trying to put together a food drop 
So that's you know, amazing that he was able to do that. What resourceful yeah, guy. I know. I mean, you know, but it's also, I really have to do a big thanks to the Falkland islands because they normally, if you need to get supplies from a country, you, you've got to clear in there. You have to go through customs, you know, all sorts of stuff has to happen. And, you know, I think my father had basically, you know, told them what I was doing and what I was trying to do. And they said, yeah, no problem. Just just come in here. Don't anchor. Don't do anything. We're just going to pull a boat up right next to you, and we'll throw you all the boxes. All you got to do is pay for it. And, yeah. and so I did, and, and it, was, it was one of those things where, was, uh, you know, 36 hours of very intense, very scary sailing to get into uh, a small port or sort of safe harbor called Port Williams, which I didn't have a chart for. Uh, and the conditions were just deteriorating. A storm was on its way and no sleep. I finally get in there. The boat, after a few hours, sees me and comes out. These guys pull up and within literally 45 seconds, the boxes were on my boat and I was floating away from the Falklands. And, it, you know, it's yeah, it was one of those times where. I, I just yeah it was it was over way too soon <laughs> you know what I mean yeah and but it was also you know when I look back on it it was one of the greatest days of the entire trip born out of me screwing up the provisioning and that resulting in two and a half months of real starvation i mean i i lost 50 pounds yeah i saw pictures of you yeah i mean i i i looked horrible it was it was incredible i had no fat at all um but you know besides just the physical effects that were happening mentally you know i basically sat there and thought about food for two and a half months listening to my stomach growl i mean a lot of times all i would eat was some rice with a little soy sauce on it and i i can I can remember just sitting there and, and being so hungry and cooking up a, like a half cup of rice, putting soy on it, and then going ahead and, and eating it, listening to my stomach just gurgle and, and everything as I'm eating and right. never, never losing for a second that feeling of I'm so hungry. Right. Wow. So, and once you got your food and you start heading north again, um, is it smooth sailing from that point? Uh, you're, you're now in the Atlantic, but you're still pretty close to the Southern Ocean, so it's a dangerous spot down there still. Yeah, I, I had to go through a couple pretty nasty storms. Uh, I think it was three of them from the Falkland Islands until I reached the trade winds. And, you know, they were a little different now because instead of, instead of heading with the storm, I was trying to go north. So, you know, as these systems would, would approach and, and finally hit me, initially the wind is from the north, so it's straight on the nose where I want to go, which you can't sail. So I would be pinned down for, you know, 12 hours, 24 hours, where I'm not moving, I'm just getting battered, I'm making no progress. Sometimes I'm going the wrong direction. And then, you know, as the storm passes over, the winds change to more of a south, and then I can continue on my way so it was pretty demoralizing but you know each day it got a little warmer and each day I got a little further north until then yeah I finally got out of the southern ocean and it's drastic you know I went from snow and hailstorms within a, a, a week or 10 days it was already warming up and then another 10 days after that I was in shorts 
Right. Wow. That's and, and did you where where on the journey did you have the you know, I've told you before, my kind of sailing, I'm a fair weather sailor. I like fair winds, following seas, maybe 10 to 15 knot wind. Me, me too. <laughs> on, on the stern quarter. Where on your journey did you get the best, most consistent sailing like that, where you could just put up your sails, nice, comfortable downwind following seas? Where did you get that kind of sailing? Yeah, we, we call that set it and forget it. Yep. And uh, that... I would say the absolute most consistent breeze that I got was after crossing the doldrums. So you cross the equator going north, you battle your way through all these thunderstorms and these no wind pockets, we call them holes, and uh, you hit the trade winds in the northern hemisphere. And so I was off the tip of Brazil, maybe three, 400 miles into the North Atlantic, and uh, the winds, the trades kicked in one day and it was literally, I, I can remember I'm sitting in there and there's seaweed everywhere. There's no wind at all. I've been in the doldrums for like nine days. I'm basically going stir crazy. Right. And, and I remember being on deck and I could hear what sounded like a waterfall. And I heard it for about 20 minutes before it finally hit. And basically what it was, was the edge of the wind. Really? As soon as that wind hit me, it basically went from zero wind and I'm floating to 15 to 18 knots of wind, which is essentially perfect. Um, And it stayed like that for the next 12 days. Wow. I only changed the sail plan twice in 12 days, which is unheard of. I mean, and it was it was a following sea. It was, you know, the wind was just right for what's called a broad reach. So it's. It's what we always used to jokingly say. That's how gentlemen sail. We only sail downwind. That's and right. Because it's comfortable and it's fast and it's easy. And that was a time where, you know, as wonderful of a break that was, three or four days into it, I was I was going a little crazy because I had read all my books basically at that point. I think I was still saving one or two. But, uh, you know, there was nothing for me to do at all. I mean, I could do my daily routine of checks and do a right. little exercise and things like that, but you know, it was it was it was so consistent, it was too consistent. <laughs> well, let let me ask you a couple of fun questions here. So, when you, when you got to the Falkland Islands and you got your reprovisions, what what was your favorite thing that that they gave you on there? Anything really memorable to you? Well, probably the, the rum, the vodka, and the scotch would be they, they would be number one. Maybe All those right. were the most important. What's but, your uh, go what's your go to booze? <laughs> what's number one most important? Uh out there, you know, honestly, if I could do some sort of whiskey sour or or maybe even a uh a, like a vodka tonic or something like that, those always feel crisp and refreshing. You know, uh, obviously when you're out at sea you, you can't you, you can't be getting intoxicated because you do that, and then all of a sudden, that's when something bad is going to happen, and you're in no condition to deal with it. But I will say, there's almost nothing better than what we call a sundowner. So you know, you get this beautiful sunset, you have yourself one, maybe two cocktails, enjoy about an hour of just watching this this beautiful scene go by. Yeah, there's absolutely nothing better than that. And um, you know, on this voyage, obviously, didn't. By that point, I really didn't have any uh, any way of, of mixing those. I didn't have any tonic. I didn't have any ice. So it was pretty bare bones, you know, 
typically uh, some scotch and water. But boy, you know, I think I had my last cocktail in the Indian Ocean. And so it had been, you know, four months or something like that of total sobriety. I, I had one beer at Cape Horn. <laughs> so, so it was nice to get that again. It was again. really so nice. Tell me about the ham sandwich. I know you got one heck of a good ham sandwich. Oh, there, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, when, when I took uh, all the provisions over to my boat, I mean, you know, as soon as I started, you know, I waved the guys off and I was floating and sailing away after I had, I had sort of packed a lot of stuff. I mean, literally, if I was an octopus, that would be the only thing that would have been better because I would have been able to hold more things of food and eat them <laughs> faster. But I had I had cookies in one hand, I had M&Ms, and then I was eating this ham sandwich. And I hadn't had, you know, white bread or ham in literally like six months. It was, it was unbelievable. And it, I still, you know, I think that's, that's becoming more and more of a theme in my life of, you know, the harder something is to get through, the more enjoyable it is when you get to the other side. And that's right. with, you know, taking punishment through a storm to get to the calm or, you know, starving yourself for two months so that that first ham sandwich tastes like the greatest ham sandwich ever because you know I, I i sometimes like to think about you know you could go into the fanciest restaurant in the world and order the most expensive ham sandwich it's never going to taste as good as that one that i had in the falkland <laughs> islands that literally had white bread ham i think it had mustard and maybe some cheese Right. And that one, I'm sure, will never... It'll pale in comparison to... For the rest of your life. For the life. rest of my life. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. That That's incredible. So, uh, you're having great uh, downwind sailing in the back. So, tell us tell us about... Because you did some... Made some significant uh, flybys on your way back up to Gloucester, uh, going by the bitter end. T- Tell us about how you approached and the, the last several weeks of the journey, how that went. Well, so, you know, the, and this is an example of, you know, sometimes it's better not to, uh, it's, it's better just to shut up because <laughs> before I left the trip, you know, I'm, I'm saying goodbye to all my friends down in the Caribbean before I head to the States to, you know, get ready. And I kept saying, oh, don't worry, you know, I'll, I'll do a flyby when I get back. You know, as I'm coming back up the Atlantic, I'll come. And, and you know, when I was rounding, you know, Brazil and I'm in those consistent winds and stuff, had I set a course directly for Gloucester, it would have been, you know, two weeks, maybe maybe 20 days from where I was. But I had these commitments where I had made these promises and people wanted to see me and I knew they were waiting. And so what I planned to do was a flyby of the island of Dominica, and that's halfway down the chain of islands. And then from there, go to the BVI and do a flyby there. And for my calculations, I think that added probably two weeks to the trip. And that was one thing I had not considered, but you know, <laughs> it was one of those things where it was worth it because when I finally did reach those, those islands, I was able to see these warm faces, these, these friends. And, you know, that was one time it definitely got emotional when I was finally sailing away from the, the British Virgin islands. Cause it was, that was hard. I wanted nothing more than to just anchor and check in and, and grab a beer and sit down with my buddies. But, you know, I still had another 1,800 miles to go. And yeah. 
That yeah. flyby was pretty cool, and they put it up on Facebook Live. I remember watching that. They had some friends of yours out there putting it up on Facebook Live. Well, and that so yeah, that was right in front of the bitter end, and and unfortunately, you know, Hurricane Irma basically destroyed, completely destroyed that resort. They're rebuilding it now, but you know, it was one of those things where I had only seen pictures. The last time I'd actually been there, the resort was fully operational, and. When I pulled in there, it was it was in the you know the the early hours, and as I was sailing in North Sound, which is like a big lake basically, the sun slowly comes up and it unveils a completely destroyed resort. They they hadn't touched anything, you know, because the right. insurance, all that sort of stuff. And so it was, I was basically seeing the aftermath, and wow. How how were you communicating? By the way, I I because. I, your VHF radio was broken at this point, so you weren't able to communicate with them. So how did you arrange to have people out at the correct time when you were coming by? Was that by text with the Garmin inReach? Yeah, that was all done. You know, it's basically third party sort of stuff. So, um, you know, I would text, you know, my mom and she would get in touch with the other person. But, you know, I could also people could text me from anywhere in the world they wanted to. So. You know, it was one of those things where I thought about putting on, you know, the website or, or the Facebook group, you know, my number. But then I thought better of it. I was like, holy cow, <laughs> that thing will be going off left, right and center. You know, right. just people checking in, wishing me well, which would have been fun. But I didn't go out there to sit on my phone and text. You know, it yeah. was it was like, you know, I, acceptable for me to do that, you know, once or twice a day. Right. But, but, um, yeah, so people would just, they'd, they'd be able to, we'd do like a little, um, we call it the coconut telegraph down there. But, um, yeah, I got word got out and, and the people came out and everything. So after that flyby, then were you able to get into the Gulf Stream and, and use that to help uh, have the current take you up north to nah, finish the voyage? I'm, I am very wary of the Gulf Stream. So if I wanted to speed along, yeah, I, I could have, you know, tried to go and hook into the, the Gulf Stream and sail with it. But it's it's a it can be a very dangerous place, especially in in June. Um, you know, that's that's the beginning of the hurricane season and you catch the wrong wind system. And again, that wind going against the current, it can turn into just a nightmare. So I aim to just be able to cross the current cross the Gulf Stream as quickly as possible so that I'm in and I'm out. So I was heading pretty much due north from the BVI straight towards, you know, Cape Cod. And so I was well away. I like to say, you know, a couple hundred miles away from the stream uh, until I actually have to cross it. And then it's, yeah, it's like trying to cross. I consider it to be crossing a busy highway. Just right. do it quickly, keep an eye out and get the heck out of there so you caught so when you were finishing the voyage you were actually then to the to the east of the gulf stream heading north uh do, 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 do. yeah from the caribbean so i'm east of the gulf stream and then i cross it as it takes its turn towards europe and i cross it there and then i'm basically west of you know or north northwest of the, okay uh, the Gulf Stream. And then, uh, so what was your approach like in coming into Gloucester? I mean, I'm sure you had a lot of happy friends and family there waiting for you to end. Oh the yeah. Voyage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, it was, it was an interesting time because, you know, you get past Cape Cod, you go through all the fishing fleets and all that. So you don't sleep at all. And I think this is, you know, day t 269, 270. 
and I get up to Gloucester and the, the winds are just completely dead. I spent the last full day out at sea becalmed, uh, you know, within 20 miles of Gloucester and I'm watching lobster boats putter around, do their thing. One of them even came up to me and, uh, they gave me a, a little prepackaged salad and some nice, some, uh, some barbecue chicken breasts. I, it was a boat called golden girl. And, uh, yeah, they came up to see if anything was wrong. Cause I was just floating there. And I, I basically told them how long I'd been out for. And, and the first thing they said is you want some food? <laughs> <laughs> Smart guys, you know. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um, yeah, I was becalmed, and I was becalmed all night. But you know, now I was seeing airplanes. My cell phone worked. I was making phone calls, all that. It was really hard to sleep that night. But the, you know, the next morning, it was basically I got to get in there uh, to Gloucester because they had a lot of events going on that weekend, like the Greasy Pole and and the blessing of the fleet and stuff. And the harbor master wasn't too happy to have to deal with some solo guy who left nine months earlier and decided to come back. Uh, <laughs> but it was cool. The Coast Guard came out. They had, uh, you know, one of their big inflatable ribs with a, a water cannon on it and stuff. And, you know, a lot of friends and family started motoring alongside. And, and I got in there and, you know, cannons are going off and everything. And I, I'll never forget this one guy had had taken a little rowing shell and he had rowed all the way out to the break wall. And, you know, I made sure to tip my hat to him and step. And he had said that was that was a, a big moment for him for sure. Yeah. And, you know, it was it was it was intense, but it was also interesting that I I kept thinking. You know, I was like, I don't know what the big deal is. You know, I'm just out here saying because you know my thinking. I had to practice so much of short-sighted thinking out there because the the idea of trying to sail thirty thousand miles is is so daunting. It, it's terrifying. You get you know, right. a panic attack. But, you know, after after practicing, you know, just thinking about one day at a time, that's all I could do. So I, I was really just under the impression I'd been sailing for basically a day. Right. And I didn't know what the big fuss was. Everybody else was, you know, thinking about the whole entire trip. And um, so it was it was sort of mixed feelings. But I was also really nervous. I was nervous about seeing everybody. I didn't know what they were going to think. I didn't know if the harbor master was going to be real mad. And uh, and I was also scared of having to dock the boat. I hadn't done that. In <laughs> oh, so you didn't long. want to mess that one up. And man. I was doing it in front of a crowd. You know, that's the worst part. So, <laughs> luckily, that went that went pretty smooth. And did, did you feel wobbly when you got on on land? How did yeah. that feel? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it it wasn't too bad though. Um, it was a floating dock one. And because the conditions had been so calm for the last like two three days you know, it, it sort of wears off. I've, I've been on voyages where we've, we've gone through very rough weather just right up until you, you reach land. And those right. are times where, yeah, you're literally almost falling off the dock. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been a while now since you've been back, you did, did the trip. You, uh, you've done a lot of presentations all over the country. People want to hear about this and, and, I've been fortunate enough to see you speak live once up in Michigan. Uh, recently, I saw a Facebook uh, live pre uh, interview presentation you did, which was outstanding. You've also written a book, which, by the way, uh, it's an incredible book. I've read it. Uh, my dad's read it. We both loved it. And it's Thank you. Sailing into Oblivion. Um, I highly recommend it. It just it, it makes you feel like you're on the journey along with you 
experience and all the joy and all, all the heartaches, but I'm nice and warm and cozy in my chair. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> it's pretty that, cool. That was, that was what I was really trying to do. I, I wanted to make a book that, that told the story in sort of an interesting way, um, but, but made it feel like you're right there on the boat. Um, but you, you know, yeah. you get to, you get to understand what it's like to do this trip, but you don't actually have to do it. Yeah. And so what, what I'm going to do on this podcast, so for everybody listening, if you want a link to the book, it's, it's going to be in the details section of this podcast. The name of the book is sailing into oblivion and it's available on Amazon. You can uh, buy it, buy a paperback copy. You could buy a Kindle. Uh, copy and, and read it on your Kindle. And uh, it's an outstanding book. Also, there's going to be a link to um, www.fifthcape.com. Now, there's a lot of information there um, that I think people really need to see to be able to visualize what you did. Number one, the route, the route you took is there, which I think is really important. What else is on that website, the fifthcape.com site? Well, it's got, it, it has basically a lot of information about uh, my speaking and, and stuff like that, whether it's inspirational or it's storytelling. I've got a little information on the book. Um, there's a nice gallery that shows, you know, I, I was lucky enough to have uh, one of my cousins who's a photographer there when I left and there when I came back. And so he took some pretty amazing shots uh, of the boat and, and everything. So it was kind of cool. But, you know, it's, it's basically just a little bit of information. Um, and there, there is a, a pretty interesting on the homepage, a six-minute video from the couple of days I was in Gloucester before I left. And that one gives you a really good idea of the boat of the route and of my sort of goal, uh, in the entire voyage. Yeah. And I, I, th I'm going to have to put a link, uh, to that video, uh, on this podcast as well. Cause that, that's a tremendous uh, video and really sets the tone. Well, um, you know, out of curiosity, so you didn't have time to write a book on the voyage. So when did you decide to write the book? How long after the voyage ended was it? Well, I was, I was pretty fortunate. You know, I, I was able to sit down with John U. Bacon, who's the author of, you know, the great Halifax explosion amongst other, uh, selling uh, novels. But he, he went and sat down with me for about an hour and a half and, and went through how to, you know, just top tips for, for writing a book and how to discipline yourself into it. Because I knew I wanted to do one more than do, you know, documentary, anything like that. I really just wanted because, you know, it, that was big inspiration was those books that I read. And I wanted one. You know, my my goal, honestly, was to one day walk on somebody's boat and see my book along with the other books that, that started me out. Right. And I've actually been able, fortunate enough to do that already. But uh, I knew that I was going to have to buckle down. I couldn't have distractions. And basically, I needed to set aside three or four hours every day until this book was finished. So I set sail and went back down to the Caribbean, anchored the boat, was pretty isolated from everybody. And for four hours every day, I wrote and wrote and wrote and... I used all his information to basically get it done, and man, it was it was hard. Uh, some days I would only produce a paragraph. Some days it was ten pages, but 
after I'd say about three or four months, I finally had the first draft done. Yeah, that's it. And, and like I said, I, I really enjoyed it. it. It's a terrific book and, um, I'm I'm glad to have read it and and I'm glad to know you. I feel it's an honor to know you and it's an honor to right, have you right here. back at you, Pat. I mean, uh, you know, we've known each other for almost 20 years now, yeah. and, and it's always been surrounded by sailing. I mean, yeah. we were. I think the first thing was the Hobie lesson, right? That's right. You yep. taught me to sail a Hobie. You taught me to fly a spinnaker on an ensign oh, after man. my first lesson. Yep. Uh, and then my second lesson was you would sit back in the stern and watch me try to do it and make all kinds of mistakes while you laughed at me. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't, I would have never done that. Um, That's that's what we call encouragement. Yeah. I got plenty of great encouragement and I (laughs) I appreciate it. But, um, I got, I just got one more big question for you and I got to ask this. I've known you for a long time. You're never a guy to sit still for any, uh, for too long. So you, you've had some huge adventures in your life. What's next? Because uh, you don't look like you're ready to hang it up yet. No, not yet. I, I'm, I'm already starting to get itchy feet for sure. Uh, what I was planning uh, was to go up through the Northwest Passage and then down the Pacific. From there, who knows, uh, maybe even further or maybe, you know, back home after that. But Definitely another epic voyage, you know, in the in the realm of 300 days or more. But, you know, obviously circumstances around the world have changed quite a bit. And, um, you know, I wasn't able to do a lot of the presentations I was supposed to. Who knows what's actually going to end up happening. But, um, you know, I, I sort of have a plan A, a plan B and a plan C at this point. I'm hoping to be able to set sail this summer and head north to go through the Northwest Passage. Um, I would, you know, forego that for a nice long hike in the woods again, maybe the Continental Divide Trail. Uh, But, you know, Plan C would probably be the most appropriate, which is to get a real job. But, uh, you know, let's call that Plan D. All right. That's kind of down the list. Yeah, if I can sort of keep pushing that one uh, back, that would be great. Because, you know, I... I've, I've always been under the pressure that, you know, this, this little bit of time that we have is precious and we got to use it how we find it most enjoyable. And, you know, you, you just can't take, take any time. You know, when, when I think about, not to go off topic, but when I think about um, Buzz, who was the gentleman who, you know, I was carrying his ashes out there, the last time I saw him was was the year before I left on the trip and I was headed back to the Caribbean and we were supposed to have lunch, my father, him and, and his son, and we were going to put it off. And then I kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And we ended up having that lunch and that was the last time I ever saw him. Wow. And you know, it can all be taken away so quickly. And if you've got dreams and you've got, you know, hopes and goals and things like that, you really need to make sure you go after them because it's you never know and you want to make sure that you get to them because i'll tell you when when you reach those goals it's a it's the most amazing feeling and you have those memories and it changes your life yeah well that's awesome well again uh thank you for being here my friend i wish you fair winds and following seas always thank you very much pat and i really appreciate it. i love the podcast Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. Those of you from Michigan that have been to Michigania, 
know what I mean when I say I couldn't think of a more appropriate way to start and end this episode than with a rousing round of the victors. Go Blue! Be sure to check out the links to Jerome's book, Sailing Into Oblivion, and the YouTube video about his journey. Both links are in the details section of this podcast episode. Next time, we're heading back to our tales of Southeast Asia with a POW who has been very important to our family for so many reasons for so many years. Also, be sure to visit and like our Facebook page, The Yankee Air Pirate. The page has lots of pictures and video of the people, places, and things we discuss in our podcast series. Last, be sure to rate and review our podcast on your podcast player. It's an easy way to help us spread these stories. Don't forget, anyone can contact us with questions or feedback by emailing us at theyankeeairpirate at gmail.com. That's theyankeeairpirate, all one word, at gmail.com. We appreciate all our listeners. Semper Fi.